Good morning. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 11 today. You're going to have to open your Bibles. No PowerPoint today. Neil got really tired of the computer. How many of you are tired of your computer? Raise your hand. Okay, so you can understand why there's just some weeks where I look at that screen and I go, you know what? You guys can open your Bibles today. You know what I'm saying? Right? So open up those Bibles. We're going we're gonna to do this, this old-fashioned kind of thing where we read our Bibles and talk about it rather than looking up at the screen. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning in verse 9, is where we're going to start today. And uh, before we get to the text, you know, it, it's, uh, it's been said that old age is a magnification of who we were in our younger days. Let me say that again. It's been said that old age is a magnification of who we became in our younger years. That is to say, old age tends to magnify the qualities and the characteristics that we developed in our youth. Old habits become more ingrained in us as we become older. Our ways of responding to the elements of life become more pronounced in our older age. If we were angry in our younger days, old age makes us grumpy. If we were cheerful in our younger days, old age brings more positivity. If we were lazy, we continue to get older and do nothing. And if we were patient in our younger days, we go on to endure the end of life with grace. Uh, for the you know, in the case of Casey and I, if, if, if it's true that old age magnifies what you're like in your younger days, then when Casey and I are in a rest home one day, Casey will be doing cartwheels down the aisle, and I will be looking online to see if there's a cheaper rest home down the street. It's a magnification. It is. Old age magnifies who you are right now. The quirks that you have, the habits that you have, those characteristics, those little things that, that can set you off, oh, those will set you off in your older age, let me tell you. Old age tends to magnify the qualities and characteristics we developed in our younger days. King Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, is coming to the end of his book. And in the very end of his book, in Ecclesiastes, he is going to make the point to you and to me, start now remembering your Creator. Start now knowing who your God is, how to worship Him, how to love Him, how to serve Him, how to become more like Him. Because if you start now, when you get older, and difficult days come, you will magnify what you were like in your younger days. If you fail to do that, as you get older and when the dark days come, you will wither away, you will waste away, you will deteriorate at the end of your life. Solomon's going to make it very clear as we finish our book. He's He's reaching out to the younger generations who are reading His wisdom. He's reaching out to those people who have an opportunity now to make a commitment now to which 
to who they're going to follow in this life, the Lord or the ways of this world. And Solomon's going to say, choose wisely, because what you do now is only going to be magnified 40 years from now. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning in verse 9. It says this in Ecclesiastes 11, verses 9 and 10. It says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Therefore remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Like an older man giving wisdom down to the younger generations, so also Solomon begins to, he, he's starting to conclude now his book in this same fashion. An older man giving wisdom to those beneath him. And he says, young people, rejoice, let your heart cheer. Take joy in this life. He says, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. That is to say, seek after the desires of your heart. Pursue your hopes and dreams. You say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like a very Christian message. That sounds like a graduation speech, right? You know, the, the class uh, valedictorian gets out there and says, pursue your dreams, you know, reach for the skies. And everybody goes, yay, and throws their hat in the air. That sounds kind of like a graduation thing, right? It's right here in the Scriptures. And it, it means what it says. Solomon says, look, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and He shall give you the desires of your heart. It's not wrong, it's not inherently wrong to seek after the things that we love. Solomon says, hey, make the most out of your life. What do you love to do? Do it unto the Lord. At the same time, Solomon says, there's a caveat. As you reach for the skies, as you reach for your hopes and your dreams and the desires of your heart, notice the caveat. The end of verse 9. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. What does that mean? Well, the point is that... The point is not that we should not follow our impulses or, or the desires of our heart, but that we should seek joy as one scholar puts it, seek joy within the boundaries of God's moral standards. Seek joy. Seek the desires of your heart within the boundaries of God's moral standards. Don't reach for something that's not becoming of the Lord. As you traverse through life, know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. You will be held accountable for every word, for every deed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we must all appear, every single one of us, all those who name the name of Christ, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5.10. All of you, me, you, all of us, we will appear before the Lord and we will be judged. We won't be judged whether we're going to heaven or hell. That's been decided because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We've been transferred from death into life because we believed in the Lord. But the judgment seat of Christ is for all Christians to come and to receive rewards, to receive honor, to receive praise from the Lord if we've been faithful, if we've been diligent, if we've persevered in this life. And those who haven't, they will be without. 
They will not be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. And so Solomon, in a very generic sense, he's, he's painting a very generic brush here. He's saying, look, follow the desires of your heart. Follow what, what, what gives you joy, but at the same time, do it within the boundaries of God's moral standards because you'll be judged. Lay hold of joy. Remove sorrow. Lay hold of what is good. Put away evil, he says in verse 10. For your childhood and younger days, they're passing by quickly. They are vainly passing by. It is important to set a foundation now for how you will live the rest of your life. And what does that foundation look like? Among the many stepping stones toward a good and full life, remember this. Notice verse 1 of chapter 12. He says, here's the foundation. Remember now your Creator. In the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Remember now your Creator. That, that phrase, remember now your Creator in verse 1, that harkens back to what has what excuse me, that harkens back to what was just said about God, namely that He will judge. Remember that God will judge. And so fear Him. Worship Him. Honor Him with our lives. Now, what, what is this indication of the difficult days? Remember now your Creator. Okay, Keep in mind as you live life, as you, cert, as you seek for joy, and you seek to live life fully within the boundaries of God's moral standards, remember your Creator. Remember you'll be judged for everything you do. He says, remember now your Creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. And the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. What does that mean? What are the difficult days? What are the unpleasant years? Well, he speaks again very generically here in verse 2 about that. He says, hey, these are some of those difficult days. Let me, let me describe them for you. He's using metaphor here. He's, he says, while the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are not darkened and the clouds do not return after the rain. Well, what's, where's Solomon going with this? What are, what are the difficult days? What are the unpleasant days? There's something about darkness. There's something about rain and clouds not returning. He continues, and he gets more specific now, beginning in verse 3 to the middle of 5 here. He says, in the days, here's his description of the difficult days. In the days when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low. Also, they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. We'll stop there. What is going on here? What is Solomon speaking about? It, it, it appears to be so vague what he is suggesting here. And I'll tell you, many scholars, they look at verses 3 to about verse uh, uh, about eight, three to eight, and, and I'll tell you, the, the interpretations are as wide as this room on verses three through eight. They really are. There are so many different interpretations to what Solomon is meaning by the content in verses three and following. Some suggest that Solomon's talking uh, in, in in ideas of, of fear, of depression, of adverse economic conditions, which have been components of the book. Notice the words tremble, fear, bow down in fear. 
rising up at the sound of a bird, perhaps in fear, afraid of heights and terrors. What about the word depression? Those that look through the windows in a dim fashion. The daughters of music being brought low. What about adverse economic conditions? The grinders cease. The sound of grinding is low. The doors are shut in the streets. So there's, there's this idea of fear, of depression, of adverse economic conditions, which Solomon suggests is certainly a part of life, and so maybe he's going in that direction. But I think, if I'm going to survey the, the, the wide, vast views of interpretation on this text, as I looked at it, as I looked at it and went through it on my own, asking the Holy Spirit for guidance, praying, saying, Lord, what, what's going on here? From my vantage point, what Solomon is declaring in verses 3 and following, he's saying, look, old age is about to set in. You say, what, really? That's about old age? Just wait. Old age is about to set in. You are about to pass from your youthful, vital days where you have vigor, where you have passion, where you have hope and dreams, and you're going to be passing into a time of life that for many, many people is very dark and very alone, very fearful. You say, I'm not sure if that, that that's what's going on here. Take a look. Notice verse 3. He says this in verse 3. In the days when the keepers of the house tremble, in our youth, masters of our domain, in our old age, trembling or quaking, the second part, when the strong men bow down. In our youth we were once strong, but now in our older age we are bowing down, we are keeling over. The grinders, in verse 3, the grinders, guess what? In the Scriptures it speaks of grinders as both work conditions and also, guess what? Teeth. Literally, teeth. This word in Hebrew can mean teeth or it can mean work. And I'm, I'm going to suggest here that it means teeth. And we're going to see more and more that this is more about decay, about approaching old age, about coming to the end of life. When the grinders, the teeth, begin to fail, what about the dimming of the eyes looking out the window? The doors being shut. A sense of inactivity. Rising up at the sound of the bird. A sense of insomnia, of sleeplessness. Daughters of music being brought low. The loss of hearing. The ability to appreciate the finer things of life. Once brave, now fearing heights. The terrors or dangers are in the way in the streets. Uh, uh, fearful of leaving the house. Fearful of going out. You say, well, I'm not so sure that this means that. Let's continue. Look at the end of verse 5. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden. And desire fails, for man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Middle of verse 5. When the almond tree blossoms... This perplexes many scholars. But in the course of the almond tree, it goes from a flush pink to a white. The vitality of youth to the graying and the paling 
of the hair and of the face. Notice the second phrase. The grasshopper is a burden. The grasshopper being the lightest, the lightest of insects, the simplest of insects, and yet it's a burden. In Hebrew, it means it's a heavy load. It means the lightest things can become the heaviest loads as you traverse through life, as you get older. The simplest things can, be, can, can weigh you down, can hold you down. And desire fails. Here for me, honestly, here, this phrase, and desire fails, is the most clear evidence in my vantage point that this is about old age. And uh, it really, the, the, the phrase here, the scriptures, the translations, give a very PG version of what that, that phrase means in the Hebrew. Particularly speaking, that phrase, and desire fails, in, uh, at, in verse 5, you know what it means? It means, read literally, it means when the, when the caper berry fails or shrivels. You say, what's a caper berry? Tom, you know what a caper berry is? Tom's laughing. I think, he, I think he's on to something there. A caper berry is from uh, this certain kind of fruit in the ancient Near East. The, the, the Capris spinoza fruit. And it was a fruit in the ancient Near East, which was very common in 3,000 years ago. This fruit was known very, very simply, and I'm just being very blunt here, as an aphrodisiac. It was used to spur on love with your spouse, to spur on uh, embracing and, and, and having intimacy with your loved one. This fruit was used in the ancient Near East for love. To spur on love. Our, our English Bible say, and desire fails. It's, that's a PG version of when the caper berry fails. What does that mean? It means that when, as, you, as you grow older, and desire and vigor and vitality and, and the desire for life, it fails. Desire fails. Literally, as you, as you grow older in life, you, you lose your desire to express your love in those intimate ways. Your body begins to fade. Your body begins to slow. It begins to slow down. And here we come all the more. And man goes to his eternal home, Solomon says at the end of verse 5. So there we see, death comes. And the mourners go about the streets. Remember your Creator in verse 6, before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, the wheel broken at the well. These are images that, again, your guess is as good as the scholars because it's as wide as you can imagine. But notice the verbs. The verbs are what help us understand the context. Loosed, broken, shattered, the idea of deterioration, of destruction. Some suggest the silver cord, the spinal cord. Some suggest the golden bowl, the, the head, the brain. The pitcher being shattered, the heart. The wheel being broken, the, the, the nervous system. It, 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 it's difficult to know precisely what Solomon means here because there are no parallels in the Scriptures for these four phrases. There are just no parallels. You can't look over the Scriptures and say, oh, definitively he's speaking about this. But if we look at the verbs, if we pay attention to the verbs, we see they're loosed, broken, shattered. Clearly the idea of destruction and death is in view. And of course, 
This idea of death and destruction fits perfectly with how he ends in verse 7 and 8. Notice what he says. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was. And the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Adam and Eve. Adam, excuse me, formed from the dust. And the dust will return to the earth as it was. Adam, given the Spirit of God, the, the, the breath of life, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Friends, in my opinion, and I, I'm not going to stick my stake in the ground and say this is the only interpretation of the end of the book, in my humble opinion, prayerfully looking at the context of the end of Ecclesiastes, it seems clear to me that the idea of growing old and slowing down is precisely what Solomon's talking about. Growing old and slowing down. How quickly death comes to us. How brief is this life. And how meaningless the existence of the one who experiences these dark days without remembering their Creator. Solomon is admonishing us. He's saying, remember your Creator before old age settles in. Cultivate a life attitude. Cultivate a life perspective that fears and obeys God now that it might be magnified in the difficult days ahead when your youth and vitality are gone, when the back hurts, when the hands tremble, when the teeth fail, when you lose your eyesight, when your hair turns white, when the simplest things of life become a burden. Yes, even when we lose our vigor for love. Remember our Creator. There are those who finish well. And there are those who waste away at the end of life. Now Solomon knew that, that not all would heed his words of wisdom. He knew that, that not all would, in their youth, in their, in their vitality, in the, in the opportunity that they have to make life direction changes that would, that, would, that would impact the rest of their life, he knew that not everyone was going to listen. He knew that some would ignore their Creator to their own peril. Nevertheless, he, he purposed. He sought to give the wisdom he had received from the Lord to all. And notice what he says in verses 9 and 10. Moving toward the conclusion, he says, Moreover, because the preacher here is speaking in the third person, but the title there, Koelet, uh, the preacher, He's speaking of himself in the third person. It's conceivable also, I might just add, it's conceivable, and, and not, I don't think it's problematic at all, it's conceivable that, that uh, someone may have wrote an epilogue to Ecclesiastes, much like Joshua wrote an epilogue to the book of Deuteronomy on behalf of Moses. So it's conceivable that this could be the, an, an epilogue from a... Uh, a a man who was close to Solomon, a spiritual friend and compatriot with Solomon because it's in the third person. But it's also the case that Solomon could have wrote in the third person, just as easily the case. So take a look at the end of the book here, verse 9. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still, he still taught the people knowledge. 
Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright words of truth. Notice, because the preacher was wise, that is to say, on account of his wisdom, he taught the people knowledge. What else? He pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. That is to say, he pondered. He thought about. He sought out. He actively desired. And he set in order. That is to say, he arranged and he composed many proverbs. Verse 10 says, Solomon sought to find acceptable words. That is to say, to find new and relevant methods of communicating God's truth. And what was written was upright. It was words of truth. You know, we often think of what makes a good author or what makes a good speaker versus a bad speaker or a, or a good writer versus a bad writer. It's not so much their ability to come up with something that's, that's new, a new kind of knowledge that no one's ever heard before. That doesn't so much make a good author or a good speaker as much as they're made by communicating old truth in a new and relevant way. Good authors, good speakers. Solomon would say, hey, there's nothing new under the sun. Don't teach me something new that hasn't, hasn't been there before because God's truth is laid bare before all. But tell me the same old story. Tell me the same truth of God in a new and fresh and relevant way. It says Solomon sought to find acceptable words. He thought about the truths of God and positioned his words to meet the culture at large, to meet the people in front of him. And friends, that's a challenge to us. This is the task of every Christian, to communicate God's truth in a new and fresh way, to take the, the same old truth and package it well for those who hear it. You know, it's often, I often, when I preach, I often get discouraged because I think to myself, at the end of the day, I'm done with my study, I'm sitting in my office, and I'm looking at what I have, and I go, there's nothing new here. I often get discouraged by this. I look at my, I look at my outline and my text and the scriptures, and I'm going, everybody knows this. Everybody knows what's on these pages that I've, that I've written and studied and thought over and prayed over. Everybody knows this. But you know what? My job is not to teach us something new as much as it is to teach us the same old truths of God in a new and fresh way. Amen? Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. The truth of God is there. It's here in the Word. He's revealed Himself in our creation. Point to that same old truth, but do it in a new and fresh way. Don't be discouraged that you're not inventing something. Don't be discouraged that you're not pulling something out of the Scriptures that, you, that, 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 that has never been said before, because what God asks us, us to do is to be faithful to the truth that is there. The task of every Christian is to communicate God's truth in new and relevant manners to the culture around us. To be faithful to the same old gospel story. Verse 11 and verse 12. It says, The words of the wise are like goads. The words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these, 
Of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. He says, wise words are like goads. That is to say, they, they, they prod us toward a straight path. They're sharp, they're plain, they're direct, they're convincing. Scholarly words are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. That is to say, they're God-given for purposes of bringing stability and strength to our lives. William MacDonald said, They provide strength and are also pegs on which we may hang our thoughts. These well-driven nails. And notice it says the words of scholarly men. (laughs) Wise words are like goads. Notice verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. And the words of scholars... Those that we respect for their intelligence, their knowledge, their wisdom, are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. Once again, so often in academia, the most respected scholar appears to be the one whose words oftentimes most flagrantly betray the Word of God. But here Solomon writes plainly, Do you wish to be a learned person? Do you wish to be considered scholarly? He says, speak the words of God. That's a scholarly man or woman. That's a wise man or woman. Solomon says, Be admonished by these insights on true wisdom. Namely, that the wisest and most scholarly words are the words of God. Therefore, devote the greatest amount of your attention to God's words. For of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. That's very true. There are some who read more books than they do the Word of God. Solomon says that's not to be the pattern. That's not to say that there aren't books out there that we can learn from, that we can grow from. We should. We should be reading. We should be carefully considering what, what are the ideas in our culture and comparing them with the Scriptures. But our first textbook is the Scripture. Our first textbook is the Word of God. And only secondly do we go to outside material. You know, Dr. Stephen Lewis of uh, the Rocky Mountain Bible College, he wrote an article about six months ago It was absolutely fantastic. Uh, He wrote an article critiquing the way evangelical seminaries interpret the Bible. And he said, I'm I'm, uh, having trouble with this. Dr. Stephen Lewis wrote an article critiquing, criticizing, the way modern evangelical seminaries and Bible schools teach pastors and scholars how to interpret the Word. And he said, so often in today's seminary, and I can attest to this, so often in today's seminary, they'll read the text. Okay, let's read our, let's read our Bible today. So we're going to read, read the text. And after reading the text, the first thing, the first thing that the professor will do, or that the, the lecturer will do, is he will then go on to quote the words of other men and women on that text. The first thing. They'll read the text and then they'll immediately consult what modern day commentators are saying about the text. After that, after they've considered what modern day people have said about it, then they go on to the reformers. What did John Calvin say about it? What did Martin Luther say about it? After that, then they go to the early church fathers. What did St. Augustine say about that? What did Jerome say about that? And it goes back and forth. Modern day reformers, church fathers. Modern day reformers, church fathers. They just swing the pendulum back and forth. What did other people say about this? What did other people say about this? And that becomes 
the manner in which interpretations are found in evangelical seminaries today. That's not uniformly the case. I would be remiss to say that. It's not uniformly the case. But it is often the case that we are reading scriptures and that we are immediately consulting what other people have said about it to finalize our interpretation. Solomon says, shame on us for doing that. Shame on us for doing that. He says that the scholarly words are the words of God. Of making many books, there's no end. But the Word of God is to be the basis, the foundation, the first place we go. So what am I saying here? I'm saying, where is the one who will read and interpret the Word first themselves? Where is the one who will come to the Scriptures with an attitude of care and prayer, diligently asking the Holy Spirit of God to guide him as he reads, earnestly asking God to remove preconceptions that we've so often brought to the table from preachers, from teachers, from commentaries that we've read. Solomon and others say, start here, in the Word. And when you do due diligence in the Word, then and only then is it appropriate to consider the words of others who have claimed to start here. But yet, sadly, and this was... uh, Al's, Al's grandson, Pastor Fred Eaton over at Grace Church in Saurita, I remember him making a comment to me once about a commentary he was reading. He said, Neil, I'm reading this commentary on Luke. And he said, all it is, the, the, the author of this commentary in the Gospel of Luke, he's not dealing with the text. The only thing this commentator is doing is dealing with the comments of other men and women who have commentated on the, on the book of Luke. That is to say, the commentary wasn't even interpreting the Scripture. It was just interacting with the other men and women who were making statements about it. Sadly, so many commentaries today are filled with more quotations of other scholars than they are filled with actual biblical exegesis. We often think of a book that's well footnoted uh, as being a scholarly book. I would rather see a book with ten pages of strong biblical exegesis than a book of a thousand pages with a thousand footnotes. Give me ten pages of someone who reads this carefully, prayerfully, asking the Spirit to guide them, searching the Scriptures back and forth, comparing Scripture with Scripture, and not going outside until they've done due diligence here. Shame on me for doing this sometimes. Shame on me for immediately resorting to what a teacher has said and not doing due diligence here. I've done it before. Shame on me when I've done it. Shame on all of us when we leave the Scriptures and go elsewhere first. Oh, well, so-and-so said. Oh, but, but Calvin said. Study the Scriptures first. Stay in the Word. Deal with the text. Let's not deal with all the plethora of comments from the commentaries of men and women. Let's start with the Word. Solomon concludes in verse 13 and 14. He says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
Solomon says, this is it. This is it. This is what life is all about. Notice how verse 14 Notice how verse 14 neatly corresponds to where we began. Look back at chapter 11, verse 9. Notice 11, 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. And now at the end, let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep His commands. This is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. The impending judgment of God is where Solomon leaves his readers. You can live how you'd like. But in the end, you will be judged for how you live. And even the secret things, Solomon says, hey, the secret lifestyle that you think you may have, the secret sin that no one knows about, that maybe even your spouse does not know about, it will not be secret in the end. And we've been, we've been admonished recently. I've, I've appreciated Doug Sprague and Jordan Fraker and the uh, most recent two Beachanites. These two men have both uh, emphasized the theme of, hey, be transparent before God. Be open before God. Be honest before God because He knows. He knows who you are. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows the sins you struggle with. And so hiding them from Him is foolish. It's foolish. For those of you who are entrenched in sin, it is high time to repent in view of the coming judgment of God. For those of us dabbling and experimenting with a wayward lifestyle, it's high time to confess our sin and to receive the cleansing power of Jesus Christ's blood. Solomon says, remember our Creator now. Cultivate a life attitude that fears and obeys God now that it might be magnified in the days ahead. That it might be magnified, shown more brightly in the days ahead. You know, we honored Al, uh, Elder Al Eaton today. Al has spent 41 years in this church. He's been there from the very beginning, from just a, when the church was just a few months old. But before we, we presented him with that plaque and, and spoke the, the words that we did, I shared with you a little bit about his life. And, and did you notice that everywhere Al went, he became an elder. Everywhere he went. They moved to Tucson, he started teaching and became an elder. They moved to Boulder, he started teaching and became an elder. They came down to San Clemente, he started teaching and became an elder. They moved to Dana Point and so on and so on. And here at Coast, he became an elder. I would suggest to you that Al and Kit alongside him in their younger days, when they had the youth and the vitality and the vigor and the hopes and the dreams that they had in their younger days, they remembered their Creator in the days of their youth. That when the darker days came, when the older age came, when the more difficult days came, they stayed true to the Lord. Cultivate a life attitude that fears and obeys God now that it might be magnified in the days ahead. Let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we have much to learn as a people. And Father, we, we need Your help and Your guidance as we traverse through this life. Lord, in our youthfulness, those of us who are in our younger days, who are still forming our lives, help us now 
to remember you so that later on in life, as we approach darker, more difficult days, you will be magnified through us. Father, for those of us who are older, some of whom have cultivated that life early on and are living well in their older age, praise you, Father. Praise you for that. For those of us who are older and who are feeling the difficulty, who are feeling the the depth of those dark days, who are sensing a a difficult life ahead, Lord, help, help all of us to repent, to confess, to turn back to You, to start afresh these days. Father, we reject the idea that You can't teach an old dog new tricks. We, we commit today that we can follow You on into the difficult days ahead. We commit to remember You, Father. We commit to remembering our Creator, to fearing You, to worshiping You, because we know that in the end, You will judge everything we do every word we speak, every deed. So, Father, we covenant today, again for the first time, to live our lives in honor, in awe, in worship of You, that when we come before Your Son one day at the judgment seat of Christ, He may look upon us and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.